Chicago Cubs, who haven't seen this struggle fest of their own. They've lost 10 consecutive games. Hopefully, making the Levitt State one up against the Braves. I feel a little bad for David Ross. I mean, you're going through a rebuild. You know that. But it's just been a tough stretch. They've lost 10 in a row. The offense hasn't been very good. Over that 10-game stretch, they're having three runs per game. The team ERA is over eight. Starters not going deep in the ball game. The defense has been atrocious. Just nothing about their way. It, it's, been, it's been crazy. Now, that being said, they do have some offensive power, and they do have some uh, over-the-pitch power. But when you look at the lineup up and down, you're not seeing Chris Bryant. You're not seeing Javi Baez. You're not seeing Anthony Rizzo. Those are the names you see when you see the Cubs and say, okay, this team has a chance. Well, those guys are not there. Uh-huh. So they still have some guys that are impressing as far as the offensive standpoint is concerned, but overall this team has not been good. Normally I'd say this is, BJ calls these the trap games because they're coming up against a team that isn't playing yeah. particularly well, but we've been facing teams similar to this over the course of the streak. So I feel like we're now at a point where it's all about us. We're not so much worried about what the other team's doing. We're focused on what we're doing. We've got a plan. We're executing amazing. Everybody's, whoever's doing the, the, the plans in, in the meetings is doing a fantastic job. So everybody's, and plans are as good as the person that's Oh, we don't want that. Hello. It's me. It's Brian. I'm here to read a few things. And why not? I bet you there's a whole... Eight to 12 people listening out there. Here we go. In 2011, The Good Wife aired an episode called The Great Firewall. In it, a Chinese dissident is tortured after Chum Hum, the fictional search engine company, turns his IP address over to the communist regime. Lockhart Gardner made high-minded arguments against Chum Hum, which turned out to be a pretext. Our heroes were helping Another tech company hurt the competition, and that company would also play ball with China. Alicia was horrified, but her boss, Will, spoke plainly to her. What do you know, uh, who do you know, who is doing something for the right person? I would love to meet them, because my guess is after five minutes of questioning, we'll find the wrong person. Oh, we'll find the wrong reason. Anyway... I'm going to keep going. I think you'll see what I'm getting at. After the episode aired, China barred CBS from distributing The Good Wife there. Hello, this is episode uh, 26, 27, for all time. It's Friday, 17th of uh, June, 1.40 p.m. Just getting started here. Hold on. I got a lot of good stuff for you. Don't worry. Uh, after the third episode, uh, after the episode aired, China barred CBS from distributing The Good Wife there. It was deja vu for Robert. 
one of the kings is an article and interviewing of the couple who made uh, the good wife and the good fight is deja vu for robert in 1997 his movie thriller red corner in which richard Gere played an american attorney doing business in china had been banned by beijing along with kundun and seven years in tibet the experience gave robert a sour taste of chinese cultural power after that crackdown there were no more chinese villains in films when in 2018 disney filmed a live action version of mulan near the uyghur concentration camps robert saw echoes of hollywood's cowardice during the holocaust in 2020, the Kings wrote another story about China into The Good Fight. The A story again centered on Chum Hum, with an earnest courtroom sequence in which a Uyghur activist delivered wrenching testimony. But the show also had one of its high-concept schoolhouse rock cartoon segments, a Jonathan Calhoun ditty called Band in China. Mind-bendingly self-referential, the sequence created by Gearhead Animation told the story of how the good wife had been banned a decade earlier then showed scenes of editors preemptively snipping footage to ensure chinese distribution it also included a stream of images that were barred in china including winnie the pooh a symbolic stand-in for president xi jinping for more than a decade the kings had embraced the network system a clear hierarchy that everyone understood they turned in the lyrics and sketches to CBS. Standards had okayed everything. Then, just before the episode was set to air, they got a call. The network was cutting the animated segment. At the time, Michelle was in a hospital in Los Angeles. She's the other king, the, the uh, couple kings who uh, write these shows. At the time, Michelle was in a hospital in Los Angeles with her mother, who was dying from brain cancer. Separately, the Kings reached the same conclusion. They had to quit. What rankled most wasn't the censorship, but the sinister violation of protocol. This ruling came from above. The phone calls that followed with CBS Brass weren't emotional. Michelle said, in fact, it was a relief that their ethical choice felt so clear. But as the Kings were preparing to negotiate their exit, their lawyers suggested another, another strategy. Maybe they could display a placard telling the audience that, that the segment had been censored. The solution struck a chord. It was clever. It was provocative. The Kings could make an ironic statement about Hollywood self-censorship in an episode about Hollywood self-censorship in a very good fight approach. No one would get laid off. Best of all, it was a reasoned compromise, the model of adult functioning that they respected most. Robert edited the segment, which opened as the Colton segments always did, with an animated shot of a curtain ready to rise. This time, however, the screen froze on a placard that read, CBS censored this content. He added a trace of retrostatic for some style, but as the editing progressed, the Kings decided that forcing viewers to stare at the placard in silence for 90 seconds, the same length as the song, was too punishing, and maybe self-aggrandizing, as they fancied themselves a pair of Andy Kaufmans. They cut the time to seven and a half seconds. The night the episode aired, the Kings were at a family gathering, and Robert's brother asked Michelle if it was a gag. She was aghast, and when the Kings went online, they saw how badly they miscalculated. Their own code had worked against them. Led by their desire not to be self-indulgent, not to be brats or narcissists, they created precisely the sort of ambiguous joke slash not a joke that was the hallmark of the Trump era. 
three years later, the Kings tried to identify where they misstepped. Were there any procedural things that we could have done differently except not write it? Robert asked Michelle. No, no, she said, because we checked every step of the way. We were blindsided. Robert was particularly disappointed that viewers had missed seeing the segment itself, which was so much livelier and more damning than any earnest monologue could ever be. I watch it about once a month because it's so entertaining, he said. Um, okay, I'm just going to stop there. I'm going to back up. This is in the New Yorker, June 20th uh, issue. This is an article titled, this is way far, like eight pages into an article, nine, ten pages into an article called Made for Television, The Stealth Radicalism of Robert Michelle King by Emily Nussbaum. And I'm going to say, this is a profile of them, I'm just going to say, um, I don't, I don't understand anything that's happening in this article. I read the New Yorker frequently. I have a subscription to it. Um, I don't understand what's going on here. Uh, I read the whole article, and I still don't understand what's going on here. You tell me. Um, but uh, it seems like they undercut themselves at every step to actually like make some kind of interesting voice, and uh, people smaller than them make braver steps all the time. So... I, 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 I sad that's all I can say it made me see that people at the top level who are trying to uh, claim that they're doing things aren't even aware that they're how little they're doing um, and how they're actually making steps backwards here's something a little interesting TV's live PD this is in the Thursday June 9th issue of the Wall Street Journal business section page B5 TV's live PD returns as on patrol live Reality show canceled by A&E after George Floyd killing in 2020 to appear on Reels by Joe Flint. Live PD is back on the beat, albeit with a new name and on a new network. The hit reality TV show that followed police live getting a, is getting a second life in the Reels cable network after two years after A&E canceled the program amid a growing backlash against law enforcement in the wake of the May 2020 killing of George Floyd while in police custody. Um, it's the short and long of it. They're bringing live PD back, essentially, and uh, there were some uh, specific concerns, not, I mean, definitely related to the George Floyd incident, but let's, George Floyd incident, but let's say that the, the things that happened before, right, there were enough things on live PD that before any of that went down, it was already on its last legs as like a viable product, uh, at least on that network, and it's funny to see basically the production team come back. Now, cops just came back as well. Cops was also, like, kind of uh, killed there for a moment. Uh, but they brought it back on the Fox Nation streaming service. Um, so that's where Cops lives now, too. So both of those are back. If you wanted to watch them, I suppose. Um, <laughs> if you're a UID fan, you know that there's definitely some uh, passive enjoyment to be gained from watching those. Um, I pretty much just keep up with those shows through just, uh, hearing Seth describe uh, episodes of live PD and cops when I listen to old UIDs. Um, Microsoft Chief of Augmented Reality to leave, but Aaron Tilly, same same issue, a little bit lower. An executive at the core of Microsoft Corp's metaverse strategy is leaving the company. Alex Kipman, a technical fellow at Microsoft who led its augmented reality headset project, is stepping down. Scott Guthrie, Microsoft's cloud and artificial intelligence group executive vice president, wrote in an internal email Tuesday viewed by the Wall Street Journal. 
We have mutually decided that this is the right time for him to leave the company to pursue other opportunities, the email said. I appreciate the tremendous vision Alex has provided to Microsoft over the years and all that he has done to advance our metaverse offerings over the last nine months or whatever. Mr. Kitman has been at the Redmond Washington Company for 20 years and was in charge of the team developing the HoloLens, an augmented reality headset that projects digital objects into the real world. Something I mentioned before that I think is actually the future of uh, the technology world. I, I really believe that augmented reality, as much as people wanted VR, and it will definitely be a thing in 50 to 100 years or whenever. But for now, AR is really the thing. We're looking at modifying the world around us instead of technically replacing it. We have to get people used to replacing 5, 10, 15, 20% of the world before we give them 100% of the world all the time. And besides, the technology for the headsets has to catch up. So... We're in AR. AR is the middle ground. And Microsoft is saying, put on these goggles that cost $3,500 at your workplace. And uh, hopefully you have some custom-made software to like work with it for you to do anything to do your job. Let me continue. Insider early reported Mr. Kitman's departure. Augmented and virtual reality headsets are seen as important tools for the metaverse, a largely unrealized virtual realm where proponents say people will work and play in the future. Virtual reality completely immerses users in a virtual world, a video game for example, with a headset closed off from the real world. Augmented reality overlays digital content such as 3D images or visual instructions onto a user's view of the real world. Some in the tech industry see it as a bigger market opportunity than VR, but more difficult to develop. Microsoft was one of the first movers in augmented reality. In Holo, its HoloLens was first announced in 2015 and was evolved into one of the world's most advanced headsets, which is true. But, you know, the cost is justified in its unique novel status is what it does in that sense of the word. Rather than push it as a consumer device, Microsoft <laughs> Microsoft positioned it as a productivity tool for workplaces. Despite the billions of dollars poured into the HoloLens project, Microsoft hasn't sold many headsets, which can cost as much as $3,500 each. Research firm International Data Group earlier this year estimated the company had shipped between 200,000 and 250,000 HoloLens units since launch. Other large tech companies, including Apple Inc., Facebook owner Meta Platforms Inc., and Alphabet Inc.'s Google, are pouring billions of dollars into their own metaverse projects. Mr. Kitman's group had been suffering from attrition, with many employees departing for other companies. The group felt overworked and at times struggled to meet technical specifications for its contract to develop an AR headset for the U.S. Army in a deal that could be worth more than $20 billion in coming decades. People familiar with the project said... In Mr. Guthrie's email, he said the HoloLens group had been approved to enter the operational test stage for the Army's headset... This is a huge milestone for the team and the culmination of years of hard work, Mr. Guthrie wrote. And that's it. Dude's out. Microsoft's uh, ditching uh, augmented reality for now, which, well, what that really means is they're basically firing the whole team and starting all over again. Um, USA Today snapshots. TV social ratings. We've gone over this before, but I just want to bring it back up again to let you know that nothing has changed. Okay. Social content ratings June 6th through June 12th, 2022. Original social media posts and engagement related to series and specials. Social data from Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. And this goes by uh, thousands of in, in, uh, interactions. 
WWE Monday Night Raw, 1.677 million interactions. 75th Annual Tony Awards sit in at 1.251 million interactions. Now, uh, I want to continue before I guess. Uh, WWE Friday Night SmackDown, 831,000 interactions. All you... AEW Dynamite, for your other wrestling fans, your alternative wrestling fans, 671,000 interactions. And then an AGT, America's Got Talent, 488,000 interactions. Now, what this demonstrates once again, once again, this data proves, without a shadow of a doubt, to me at least, that the scenario here uh, is that uh, wrestling fans talk on social media more than any other fan of any other thing. So... Once again, keep that in mind as you're developing an audience. We may have to see how the world of reality television and uh, wrestling interact. You know? You know what I mean? I have to do that. I'm going to step over the next uh, thing here. Another little bit of a UID theme here. Uh, Hazel Henderson, groundbreaking environmentalist and futurist, dies at 89. Hazel Henderson, this by Sam Roberts, in the New York Times obituaries, Sunday, May 29th, 2022. Hazel Henderson, a self-taught environmentalist and futurist who became an apostle of the green economy of socially responsible investing and who popularized the slogan, think globally, act locally, died or, quote, went virtual, as she would have put it, on Sunday at her home in St. Augustine, Florida. She was 89. The cause was complications of skin cancer, said Linda C. Crompton, chief executive of Ethical Markets, the media company that Miss Henderson founded in 2004 to promote, in her words, capitalism's evolution, quote, beyond maximizing profits for shareholders and management to benefiting all stakeholders. I believe in this case that she means all stakeholders is everyone involved in organizational product. An organized, produced product, which would include content, which would also include the consumers of the content. Stakeholders, even in a free product, even in something like Facebook, you are the stakeholder of Facebook, even if you don't invest in it. By creating your profile, by creating content, you are a stakeholder. So just to help you define your role as a stakeholder and all the things you are a stakeholder. Ridiculing conventional economists and Relishing her reputation in some quarters as a crank, she sought to redefine gross national product as a measure of prosperity, not merely to encompass material success on the bases of the cash value of goods and services produced annually, but also to include health, social education, and other benchmarks that Senator Robert F. Kennedy declared in 1968, after being briefed by Miss Henderson, make life worthwhile. She was instrumental in pressuring excuse me, pressing, for qualitative measurements sustainable for people focused on a democratic economy, in contrast to the dominant monetized yardsticks of corporate economies. The consumer activist Ralph Nader said in a phone interview and through networking, she spread those measures throughout the international civic community. The environmentalist and author Bill McKibben described Ms. Henderson on Twitter as a visionary ecological economist. I don't like hearing either of those words together, but I will continue. <laughs> Ms. Henderson called herself an independent self-employed futurist. Don't like that word either. Who, like the nation's founders, raised warning flags about the factionalism engendered by party politics. 
She wrote nine books, perhaps most notably The Politics of the Solar Age, don't like that title, which heralded the environmental movement's embrace of sustainable energy sources as a substitute for fossil fuels like coal and oil. Fair enough. In the New York Times book review, which we have to remember that ecologists at some point were really trying to do good things in the world before they became, uh, uh, I don't know, either pied pipered or talked themselves into becoming horrible people. Um, uh, Miss Henderson also wrote Ethical Markets, Growing the Green Economy, 2007, laid the basis for a PBS television series. Deliberately or not, her style outraged members of the Academy who bristled at her conclusion that economics is a form of brain damage. And that the professional agenda, she said, was aimed at defrocking the economics priesthood. <clears throat> I apologize. One might even say that the beneficent invisible hand envisioned by Adam Smith has become increasingly numbers of the Americans as a clumsy, heedless, invisible foot. One more time. One might even say that the beneficent... Invisible hand, envisioned by Adam Smith, has become, for increasing numbers of Americans, a clumsy, heedless, invisible foot, which tramples on social, human, and environmental values, she wrote. Yes. So perhaps, well, we'll continue. Miss Henderson's own professional evolution was a modern Cinderella story. A British-born high school graduate with no interest in going to college, she immigrated to America, where she was baptized in the environmental movement by the ash spouting from New York's garbage-burning incinerators. Forced to bathe her baby daughter every day just to remove a patina of soot and rebuffed by indifferent officials when she complained about pollution to City Hall, Miss Henderson and another concerned Manhattan parent, Carolyn Conheim, formed Citizens for Clean Air, a groundbreaking environmental group. Among other innovations, their organization transformed an obscure measurement, the Air Pollution Index, to into, into a fixture of daily weather reports today referenced to as the AQI, Air Quality Index. Uh, Jean Hazel Mustard was born on March 27th, 1933 in Bristol, Somerset, England. Her father, Kenneth, was a businessman. She recalled her mother, Dorothy May, Jessamine Mustard, as a pro-environmentalist who grew fruits and vegetables and raised chickens. Hazel later became a vegetarian and preferred recycled products, including toilet paper, in keeping with her promulgation of the Scottish planner Patrick Geddes' early 20th century axiom to think globally and act locally. Wait a minute. Oh, that is her promulgation. I thought they were saying that she stole it from him. I learned from my experience growing up in a typical patriarchal family in Bristol, a port of the slave trade in Britain, that women were trained to be the givers and men were trained to be the dominant takers, she wrote last year on the website of Radix which calls itself a think tank for the radical center. Don't like that. My mother was kept penniless by my father, a powerless business executive, and he forced her to grovel for money to pay our grocery bills. She graduated from the Clifton School, a girls' school, in 1950, worked as a telephone operator, a saleswoman, a hotel clerk, and married Carter Henderson, who wrote for the Wall Street Journal in 1957, the same year she moved to New York. She became a naturalized citizen in 1962 and moved to Florida in the mid-1970s. Her survivors include a daughter, Alexandra Leslie Camille Henderson, from that marriage, which ended in divorce in 1981, and a grandson. In 1996, she shared the Boston Research Center's Global Citizen Award with A. Perez Esquivel of Argentina, who was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1980. 
That same year, she married Alan F. K., an internet pioneer who had founded a Wall Street computerized trading concern and who underwrote her founding of ethical markets. Hmm. Together, they also started a global commission to fund the United Nations. Mr. K. died in 2016. She wrote for the Harvard Business Review in the 1960s, Red Flag, and 1970s, was named Citizen of the Year by New York Country, New York County Medical Society in 1967, uh, was a regent's lecturer at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and held a chair in conservation at the University of California, Berkeley, and advised the U.S. Office of Technology Assessment, the National Academy of Engineering, and the National Science Foundation. She remained self-employed, she told the, the Tampa Bay Tribune, in 2005 because I would have been fired off by any job for insubordination. How about that? Like that of any uh, futurist, her success was based on savvy intuition. It was also based on part of the fact that either so much time had elapsed that most people had forgotten what she once predicted or hadn't happened yet. In 1982, for example, she was asked by the Times to forecast what the millennium would look like. You will definitely see this returning to a more human scale of society, Ms. Henderson said. It'll be more efficient and do things locally. It won't make any sense to buy Wonder Bread baked in Illinois. In the future, we will share capital goods like lawnmowers and freezers and houses. Was she wrong about any of her predictions? Only about timing, Mr. Nader said. She thought quicker than other people did because she was an optimist. Now, I'm going to read The Politics of the Solar Age, Alternatives to Economics. Um, (laughs) We're going to get into that. Not going to forget about that. Put that right over here. There we go. How about this one? I love this story, and you're going to love it too. The Real Real Chief Quits as Retailers Lost His Mount. This is the Wall Street Journal, Wednesday, June 8th, 2022. Page B3 by Charity L. Scott. Luxury consigner, The Real Real Inc. said its chief executive is stepping down, becoming the latest online retailer to replace its founder at a time of upheaval in the shopping industry. Julie Wainwright, who founded the company in 2011 and has since led the online marketplace, is also resigning as the board chair and member of The Real Real's board. The changes are effective immediately. Miss Wainwright will continue to serve in an advisory role throughout the end of the year. The company named two of Ms. Wainwright's deputies to serve as interim co-CEOs and said its board had started a search for a permanent successor. The Real Real shares have tumbled more than 80% over the past year, pushing its market capitalization to below $300 million. The company went public in 2019 with a market value of $1.65 billion. It was the second e-commerce startup that Ms. Wainwright took public. She was the chief executive of online pet supply retailer Pets.com, which closed months after joining the stock market in the year 2000. Her comeback was closely watched by the venture capital world, and probably anyone with a sense of humor and knowledge of Pets.com. The Real Real offers a selection of luxury goods from handbags to furniture and inspects items before listing it on its site. It takes a commission on each transaction. It's actually a very useful service if you're trying to resell bags and stuff like that, I'm sure. It takes the eBay risk factor out. Or at least that's what their claim is. The company has been adding customers and expanding, but its losses have mounted since going public. It recorded a net loss of $76 million in revenue, of $214 million in 2018. And I will say that these uh, they frequently advertise on television, or they did at least, um, let's say, 
during the Olympic season. Miss Wainwright. Wait. Uh, let's. It recorded a net loss of $76 million in revenue and $214 million in 2018. God. Last year, it logged a loss of $236 million in revenue and $468 million. How do, okay. How, I don't know how anyone looks at math like this and, and just let that company continue to exist. But whatever. I, I, mean, I guess they're betting on the future potential. Miss Wainwright said the company is making progress in its path to profitability. Exactly. Should probably have that before we get started, but, you know, whatever. And she felt like it was the right time to find the next generation of leadership for the company. She didn't immediately respond to requests for comment. We know why. The company has appointed its president and chief operating officer, Roddy Sahi Levesque, and chief financial officer, Robert Julian, as co-interim chief executives while the search for a full-time successor occurs. The Real Real is the latest e-commerce company to have its founder and CEO resign following Glossier Inc., in May, and Stitch Fix, Inc., last year. And that's it. For that, anyway. Now I'm going to read a little story. This is from People Magazine, the June 20th, 2022 issue, page 75. Passenger... Well, passenger-turned-emergency pilot. I had to land this thing. The plane was diving toward the ocean. Its pilot, unconscious when Darren Harrison took over and pulled off a miracle by Johnny Dodd. It's a great story. I'm just going to read as much as I can. Um, it's a little broken up in the style, but I'll get, get it on microphone here. Let's see how we doing on the clock. Not bad, not bad. This is exactly I want to read this in the middle. We're 32 minutes in. A little bit of the music. I'll chop it off. Yeah, it'll all work out. We'll probably have like a minute, 15, minute 30 episode. Thanks for listening to the podcast, by the way. Did another great one this week over on Reality Issues. We finally interviewed... Um, Danielle Lindemann, if you want to go listen to that, you can find that on iTunes or wherever, wherever you find this podcast. Let me go ahead here. Darren Harrison was relaxing in his seat aboard a single-engine Cessna 208 caravan, flying him home from a week of fishing in Marsh Harbor, Bahamas, back home to Lakeland, Florida. May 10th, uh, when the pilot suddenly lost consciousness. I'm sure I butchered that sentence, but you get the point. As the plane began to nosedive in the Atlantic Ocean, Darren, 39, a small business owner who's expecting his first child with his wife, Brittany, 34, later this summer, spent the next 40 harrowing minutes staying airborne despite never having been in a plane's controls. Finally, with the help of a flight instructor and air traffic controller, Robert Morgan, he landed safely at Palm Beach International Airport to the astonishment and relief of everyone in the control tower and one of the other passengers aboard. Oh, one other passenger. One, three people total on the plane. Doctors later confirmed pilot Ken Allen, 64, suffered a tear in his aorta. However, he has recovered after surgery. Now, Harrison is sharing the details of that day with people, reliving the frightening flight in which, uh, in his own words, and explaining how he managed to stay calm during the crisis. It was May 10th, by the way. This just happened. Let me continue. It was a gorgeous day. Ken introduced me to his buddy Russ, who often flies with him and was seated in the co-pilot seat. I kicked off my sandals and stretched out in the back of the plane and took a picture to show my wife how roomy the cabin was. I was staring out the window at the clouds and the water when I heard Ken say on the headset I was wearing, Guys, I gotta tell you, I don't feel right. I've got a headache. Everything's fuzzy. I went my way up to the front of the plane and I was shaking him a little bit, hoping to bring him back. He never responded. I look out the front windshield and realize we're in a dive, falling straight toward the ocean. 
My wife is back at home, six months pregnant, and I tell myself, I can't die today. This can't happen. No, let me read that again, since it's a quote. Guys, I got to tell you, I don't feel right. I've got a headache. Everything's fuzzy. And then he replies, gets up there, I can't die today. This can't happen. No, one more time. Because he's 39. Let's see. I can't die today. This can't happen. No, one more time. One more read. I can't die today. This can't happen. Yeah, because he's still a little anxious. There we go. That's the read. At least that's the read I'm going with. The white caps on the waves are getting bigger and bigger the closer we get. And I know that if we, I don't do something, we're all going to die. I was crouched down behind Ken, reaching over him, when I grabbed what I call the stick, which is actually called the yoke. I love that he's correcting himself. I'm a bit mechanically inclined, and I've flown a lot of small planes and observed pilots. I knew from talking to them that if I yanked the stick too hard at the speed we were going, the wings would rip off, or the motor would stall. So I slowly, gently pulled the stick back. Now, for anyone else who's in a plane like this, grab the yoke steadily in both hands, and slowly pull it back. Just enough so that if the if you feel any pushback, any vibrational pushback, any kind of like wave motion when you're pulling back, that's too much. You want to pull it back so that it's basically a steady, firm feeling and you're consistently uh, climbing. So heads up on that one. Um, but he's observed some pilots and he knew that talking from talking to them, if he yanked the stick too hard, he would die. So slowly he pulls the stick back. During the dive, he had dropped 3,600 feet in 16 seconds. Now, let's see. 16, 16 is 36. So he was going down 200 feet per minute. Excuse me, 200 feet per second. So if he's going down 200 feet per second, that means that he... Yeah. That means that the pilot also wasn't using autopilot. So that means they were still... Huh. Either way. Oh my god, I could feel the G-force pushing me back. But I managed to get us back up to 9,000 feet. Which is considerably, it's completely, uh, it's well high enough to never have to worry about anything if you're that high above completely flat land like Florida. First of all, we're not dead, I thought. And if you're stabilized at 9,000 feet, you're fine. You're completely okay, especially if, even if you're between the Bahamas and Florida. You're literally up high enough that you're, you're going to be okay. You're near land enough. If you're in a scenario where you're still landing, landing or taking off and, like, worried about altitude, um, lucky for him. First of all, we're not dead, I thought, for sure. We'd be wet by now in the ocean, but we're not. We're alive. After we leveled off comfortably, it was time for me to get in the pilot seat. Do you think you can hold us at this altitude? I asked Russ, handing him the controls. Watch these numbers on the screen. Don't let them go up or down. Uh, so he's familiar with the, co- the glass cockpit. It looked like a G1000 style, like Garmin. You can kind of see the three screens from here in the, the picture that they have. Um, so if he's seen a few cockpits, he's seen them all. They all pretty much use, like, Garmin uh, tech. So if you've seen it, you know how to read planes, altitudes, climbing, and, 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 and all that, even if you can't tell by looking out the window. My headset wasn't working because I ripped the wires out when I moved Ken, so Russ gave me his. All the display screens were black, except for the gauge that tells you if the plane is level and what the altitude is. Which shouldn't have been the case, and isn't the case where I'm looking at the screen, the screens are on, and the screens wouldn't just turn off, which means at some point when he passed out, his knee or leg or arm or something must have, like, 
flicked off the comms, like the power for the comms or something like that. Because um, I don't know how else that would have happened. You have to flip a switch for that to turn off. And he didn't do it on purpose. Um, we had no navigation instruments and no GPS to tell us where we were. All I could see was the ocean. Yeah, because this wasn't a, a, a hardware failure. But screwed under the dash was this old school compass. It told me where we were flying, uh, that we were flying due south instead of northwest to Florida. The plane had turned almost completely around and was flying in the wrong direction. I was so disoriented, but I finally managed to turn the plane around. Now, it's actually possible that the autopilot was on, and his movement, when it turned off the comm system and everything, actually did turn off the autopilot. Um, which would only normally happen in an accident for it to turn off that way, obviously. Uh, so he used his manual compass. I realized nobody else in the world knew what was going on, except for the flight controllers. I, I, I got to figure out how to tell somebody, I thought. But I kept hitting the wrong button on the radio. It took me 20 minutes before I figured out how to get it working. Then I saw the Florida coast, and it hit me. Now I got to figure out how to land this thing. I called out on the radio. This is 333 Lima Delta. I got a serious situation here. My pilot has gone incoherent. I have no idea how to fly the airplane. A voice answered, telling me to drop down to 5,000 feet and head north and fly up the beach. Okay, so he's flying. He's basically, the air traffic controller is now instructing this man who's never held a yoke in his life um, to uh, descend to 5,000 feet and follow his instructions carefully. So good luck. Probably in good hands, right? These people um, know planes as well as anyone else. I practiced controlling the plane's altitude, and must, there, I assume there were probably flight instructors available, if not people familiar with actual flight of uh, civilian planes in the air traffic control tower. I practiced controlling the, uh, the plane's altitude, descending a little bit and holding it there, then taking it back up again. The controller kept telling me to descend because I was still at 2,500 feet. Yeah, you're way too fucking high, dude. You could have been flying home at 2,000 feet the whole time, and they would have cleared the air for you. Anyway, I asked, hey, once I land, how do I stop this thing? <laughs> Can I focus more on the speed, really, than the altitude? On my second pass, I had the plane all lined up <laughs> with the runway, which is getting bigger and bigger. But the controller told me I was coming in too fast. Yeah, especially uh, if you're 2,500 feet the first pass, you're going to be like... <laughs> I, had Gruss, I had Russ grab the throttle, which controls fuel flow to the engine, and push it to the floor, wondering what would cause it, if that would cause the plane to fall out of the sky. But it worked, and we touched down without blowing the wheels. Yeah, could have also cut the fuel. I'm surprised they didn't tell him to, like, cut the fuel supply, actually, before landing. Um, anyway, hey, guys, one last question. How do I turn this thing off? On the ground, I pulled my headset off, threw it on the dash, and lost it. I was sobbing and saying a prayer of thanks and an even bigger prayer for the pilot. A minute later, I was on the runway in my bare feet looking at the plane, not even a scratch on it. People say I'm a hero, but I'm not. I was just a guy trying to survive. I'm convinced God helped me go to a place where I could stay calm. It really was a miracle. One of the first things I did after calling my wife was to hug the air traffic controller who helped us. I don't do handshakes anymore. If you ever stare death in the face, you'll start hugging people too. There's a picture of the man. Judge him for what he did or did not do. He saved two people's lives by being brave and uh, having a little experience being in a plane. Not bad. Um... You know, 
fate didn't just select that man to survive. He made choices to help survive. And if I had to guess based on the lack of description of the other person, the passenger, he probably wasn't really hanging in there too well because they didn't really get any information on him at all. Uh, which probably means he was a hero to the other person directly as well. He wasn't going to save them. USA Today snapshots, money section. Uh, this is Friday, June 17th, today. Gas prices, price of gas, regular unleaded. This is in USD. Yesterday's average, $5. Wednesday's was higher. Week ago average was four ninety. Year ago average was 3 bucks. Moving on. Spotify lays out ambitions. Spacing. Excuse me. And you'll see why I'm reading this. This isn't something I would normally report on, but I, th I think you really need to hear this one. Because this is an outrageous uh, plan that they have. Spotify lays out ambitions. Thursday, June 9th, 2022. Facing skepticism, streamer says it seeks to expand tenfold and reach a billion listeners. Time, yes, but... By the way, the Swedish company's stock has fallen 70% from its peak last year. Spotify Technology SA, um, excuse me, uh, this is by Anne Steele and Jeffrey A. Trachtenberg. Spotify Technology SA defended the company's strategy Wednesday and outlined plans to expand into new businesses and address investors' fears that the audio market opportunity is limited. As its first investor day since the streaming giant went public four years ago, Spotify highlighted the loyalty of its hundreds of millions of listeners, its industry-leading music recommendations, and its podcast unit's success. I'm going to hang there. The company also pointed to its expansion globally, its growing set of tools for creators, and areas it plans to expand into, including audiobooks, and eventually education, sports, and news. The presentation came amid investor and analyst concerns. The company isn't going to turn a profit soon and a 55% slide in its share price so far this year. I don't know what makes them think that's bad, but... Chief Executive Daniel Eck kicked off the live-streamed event by laying out the company's successes from the past four years and combated the notion that, quote, we are a bad business. I'm going to continue. The CEO laid out an ambitious vision for Spotify over the next decade, one in which he envisions becoming a business 10 times its current size. That's why we're investing so aggressively in building not only a bigger, but we're thinking much more profitable business, he said in an interview. He said Spotify would reach 1 billion listeners by 2030 and generate $100 billion in revenue annually with a 40% gross margin. Quote, we believe this is a risky bet, said Daniel Ives, an analyst at Wedbush Securities. <laughs> yeah. Listen, I'm not an analyst at Wedbush Securities. Not that that gives you any extra uh, juice, quite honestly, to read the tea leaves in this kind of a scenario. However, um, yeah, it sounds like a risky bet. <laughs> the street has lacked confidence in the name and it is an oppressive but aggressive goal. I would say that I wish to have a million listeners by the end of the year. An impressive and aggressive goal. Does that mean anything at all? No. Does it mean I'm in touch? No. Does it mean I have a desire to grow? Yes. Does it mean that this is a goal I'm going to reach? 
definitely not. Naming a goal. <laughs> I love that you can get credit for being like, hey, I want to do this. And that's it. You don't even do anything. But you're like, this goal is notable. Um, stocks of the company have fallen 70% from an all-time high set last year. The stock closed up 6% in trading on Wednesday. Uh, this is a much bigger business than you saw in 2018, Mr. X said in the interview. Says that they're expanding their projects into podcasting and audiobooks. Mr. X told investors the company hasn't done a very good job of explaining its strategies. Yeah, this article isn't even doing a good job. Not only has Spotify become ubiquitous, available across more than 2,000 devices from watches and smart speakers to cars and kitchen appliances, it has attracted and retained customers thanks to its ability to make personalized music recommendations. Something that literally every other uh, music streaming service does, including Apple Music, which I actually think does it better and has better art, but, you know, to each their own. Everyone has their preferred service. Maybe use Tidal. I don't know. Maybe you, well, never mind. No, you don't. Uh, for years, Spotify executives have said they would put a priority on growth and investment in the business over profit. The company has spent around $1 billion on podcast deals since 2019. Now, none of that has come here, but it may. Mr. Eck has said those investments and the company's financials taken together have clouded some of the business's growth. Gross margins for music has been steadily climbing in large part due to Spotify's two-sided marketplace strategy, where it charges artists and labels for marketing, tools, and services. The gross margin for music is 28.5%, which Mr. Eck said represents significant progress in reaching a long-term goal of 30% to 35%. Marquee, Spotify's flagship tool that recommends new music releases to likely fans in the first quarter, doubled its new customers from the fourth quarter and saw revenue increase 225% from a year earlier. Charlie Hellman, Spotify's vice president, head of music product, said during the investor presentation. Podcasts are expected to become profitable in the next one or two years with the potential for a 40 to 50% gross margin, the company said. You make a deal with me, I'll do 33%. How about that? FDA authorizes underwear to protect against infections from oral sex. New York Times, National Edition, Wednesday, May 18th, 2022, page A18. Been holding on to this one for a while. By Pam Bellick. This article is something else. Where are we at time? 49 minutes? Perfect. This is a story about infections, sex, and underwear. More specifically, it's about sexually transmitted infections, oral sex, and ultra-thin, super-stretchy vanilla-flavored panties. The Food and Drug Administration has authorized the panties to be considered protection against infections that can be transmitted from the vagina or anus during oral sex. It is the first for underwear. The undies are part of an understudied but important area of sexual health in which the few options for protection are considered cumbersome and hardly used. Quote, oral sex is not totally risk-free. End quote, said Dr. Jean Marazzo, director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. She said the need for protective methods was growing importance because of, quote, more teenagers are initiating their first sexual activity with oral sex. I mean, how old are you? <laughs> Author? Yes. 
not new. For people of all ages, she added, a protective barrier that is enjoyable to use could, quote, reduce anxiety and increase pleasure around that particular behavior. Yeah. No one, no one. This is another one of those articles about projects that no one's going to use, products that no one's going to use, and I pretty much, I'm pretty sure this, whatever. <laughs> I'm going to continue. Uh, infections like herpes, gonorrhea, and syphilis can be transmitted through oral sex, according to the Centers for Redu Disease Control and Prevention, and real life. Um, the risk of transmitting HIV from a vagina through oral sex is considered very low, the CDC said. But HPV, human papillomavirus, is more easily transmitted that way, and mouth and throat infections from some types of HPV may develop into oral or neck cancer, the agency said. How often people transmit infections in this manner is unclear and difficult to study because most people who have oral sex have vaginal or anal sex in the same encounter, said Dr. Kenneth Meyer, the medical research director for Fenway Health, a community health center in Massachusetts that focuses on patients who identify as LGBTQ. The FDA's authorization of this product gives people another option to protect against STIs during oral sex, said Courtney Lies, director of the FDA office that led the review of the underwear. The only product previously authorized for protection during oral sex was a dental dam. No one ever used a thin rectangular sheet of latex or sometimes polyurethane that typically must be held in place with one hand, one's hands to form a barrier between the mouth and genitals. Uh, covered uh, at length in the film uh, Don't Be a Menace South Central Drinking Your Juice in the Hood I believe is the name of the film uh, they go over that in a comedy way the, the Dental Dam uh, as the name suggests Dental Dams invented in 1864 and originally made of rubber were designed to isolate teeth during dental procedures but the AIDS crisis ignited concern about sexual transmission of infections. In the early 1990s, an Australian company, Glide Health, created a dental dam that was primarily inspired by concerns of women who have sex with women, an official with the company has said. Although several brands of dental dams have received FDA clearance for protection against sexual disease transmission, the devices have not exactly been a hit. They're extremely unpopular, said Dr. Marazzo, uh, adding, I mean, honestly, could there be anything less sexy than a dental dam? No, literally, there's not. And, and I, uh, just rely on the partner that you have uh, as much as you can, telling you things and knowing things and doing things so you can have normal, whatever that is to you, sex. Um, whatever that is. And if you work for the New York Times, keep writing these articles because I fucking love reading this in the New York Times. Uh, there's little data on how widely they're used, but a 2010 study of 330 Australian women who had sex with women found that only 9.7% reported ever using a dental dam, and just 2.1% said they used dental dams often. A 2021 CDC report said use of the dental dams and other safe sex methods was infrequent among women who have sex with women. I've never seen a woman have sex with another woman using a dental dam or any other kind of protective device. I don't think that that's a thing. I think even the people who said that they've done that are probably just saying it because, like, you know, statistics. Um, I don't know. I literally, the only time I've ever even heard or seen anyone even talk about that and is that, like, is in films or making fun of it. Uh, dams are sold online and in sex shops, but are not widely available at pharmacy chains. They're usually more expensive than the 
than condoms. The CDC's web page on dental dams shows how to cut a condom to make a dental dam, but this doesn't appear to be popular either. God, Christ almighty, who would do that? Many people report that dental dams are awkward and take all the pleasure out of oral sex for both the giver and receiver. Maybe it's because your mouth isn't on the other person's genitals. I don't know. <laughs> They're saying it as if it was a mystery or like unusual, but like in an expected way. It's, it's just... <laughs> uh, yeah. Chris Barcelos, an assistant professor of women's... Uh, Gender and Sexuality Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, said, quote, they're hated even more than condoms. Yes, condoms are very much hated. The idea for Damn Like Undies struck Melanie Crystal after an experience in 2014 during her honeymoon in Mexico with her then-wife, Ms. Crystal, then a corporate lawyer, discovered she had an infection that could be sexually transmitted. Realizing how limited the protection options were, quote, I was just so discouraged, said Ms. Crystal, who recognized that when she was a sex educator in college and taught about dental dams, quote, people looked at me like I was crazy. I wanted to feel sexy and confident and use something that was made from, uh, made with my body, oh, with my body and actual sex in mind, she said. Ms. Crystal formed a company that in 2018 began selling single-use underwear for people with vulvas. She said, name the, oh, phone call. Hold on. Hello? Hello. All right. Okay, we're back. We're back. We're back. Oh, okay. Um, let's see. Where were we? Very unpopular. CDC's website. Many uh, creating the dental dams. Realizing how limited the protection options were. Discouraged. Want to feel? Here we go. Realizing how limited the protection options were, I was just so discouraged, said Miss Crystal, who recalled that when she was a sex educator in college and taught about dental dams, people looked at me like I was crazy. I wanted to feel sexy and confident and use something that was made with my body and actual sex in mind, she said. Miss Crystal formed a company that in 2018 began selling single-use underwear for, quote, people with vulvas, end quote. She said that she named the product Laurels partly because the L sound evokes words like love and lust, and it feels a little bit like a movement that you use during oral sex. Hmm. The panties available as bikinis or shorties are made of latex that is about as thin as condom material and helps form a seal on the inside of the thigh to keep fluids in. Ms. Crystal said, the company markets their use for a range of reasons, including during one's period when a partner has a scratchy beard or when a person has experienced previous trauma and doesn't want to be too exposed. Ms. Crystal said that responding to customer feedback, the company lessened the intensity of the vanilla taste, added more cornstarch to prevent stickiness, and will introduce a sheer version in addition to the current opaque black version. The company has begun selling undies explicitly for infection protection, which, Ms. Crystal said, would resemble its other products, but would meet more rigorous uniformity standards required for FDA authorization. What's interesting about this is that they have basically eroticized protection, which is something that condom companies have struggled with for years, Dr. Marazzo said. Uh... I mean, a skin-tight piece of rubber that goes around your penis is pretty sexualized and eroticized, but, you know, it, it just is what it is. <laughs> the FDA said that it will not require more uh, human clinical trials 
but as it does with condoms, gave Laurel's authorization after the company submitted extensive documentation about thickness, elasticity, strength, and other measures. Within the last year, the FDA has also given clearance to two new dental dam companies, possibly suggesting increased consumer interest or cons increased investor interest, to actually really indicate. Uh, sexual health experts said that they welcomed the additional option, but some were unsure that it would be popular and said more medical information was needed. Yes, it's another one of the string of uh, long string of products that people can get money in on the investment part. They can make an income from the, the product development aspect, and it doesn't matter if the product is ever developed into something successful. They make a good enough paycheck out of the development process. That's all that matters. That looks like what this is, in my opinion. Uh, Dr. Mayer said he'd like to see more real-world data from people's actually, uh, actual sexual experiences to substantiate the unders, underwear's ability to block infection transmission. So, okay, we're doing live human trials in the world. The FDA clearances and increased product development seem to signal a greater potential market. I don't see a ton of demand, Dr. Barcelo said, but added that such products can be an important way to show a sexual partner that you care about them and take sexual health seriously. Two Laurel's customers, whose contact information was provided by the company who asked to be identified by their first names because of the sensitive subject matter, described various motivations for using the underwear. Wisty, 28, who identifies as pansexual, has had sex with men and women, and uses they-them pronouns, and said the panties were a, quote, solution I didn't know I needed. A dancer and Reiki energy healer in the Boston area, Wisty, said that they had herpes simplex, a common infection that in rare cases can cause serious inflammatory conditions. I wanted to find something that makes it easier for me to enforce the boundaries that I wanted to, Wisty said, to be able to still play and explore while having that comfort and safety of knowing that I'm protected from my fluids going everywhere. Shelly, 29, a nurse in Washington State, said that she saw the panties on TikTok at a time when she and her fiancé, Ashton, were struggling to re-engage in oral sex after cancer requiring reconstructive surgery had caused changes in his tongue's mobility and ability to taste. In the aftermath of his cancer treatment, oral sex, once their favorite sexual activity, made Ashton feel like he was choking, and they had not done it in nearly two years. It was such a thing... Uh, it's a huge thing that he enjoyed over penetrative sex or anything, Shelley said. Without it, she'd experienced a lot of insecurity, feeling that maybe he doesn't have interest for me in a way that he used to anymore. After ordering the panties, quote, we spent a couple hours just looking at it, Shelley said. We we're like, what are we dealing with here? It smells like vanilla. It stretches to kingdom come. Like, what is this? Wearing them during oral sex worked very well, said Shelley, who added that she could barely feel the panties and that Ashton said the texture resembled skin and the taste was like, quote, you're eating a cookie. She said she appreciated the new clearance for infection protection because Ashton is likely vulnerable to cancers that can be triggered by sexually transmitted infections. The sexual experience was especially important, she said. I never thought I would feel that again, Shelley said. And he was very, like, gung-ho about it when he realized, oh, no. Oh, I can do all the things. So that's the article. Um... Uh, yeah, I just wanted to share that with you. Interesting. Interesting uh, product. Seems like anything can develop into a product. Um, with a little bit of application. New York Times National uh, sec uh, Edition, Sunday, May 29th, 2022. For bottle service with a smile in Brooklyn Park, he's the man. An entrepreneur of craft cocktails by Julia Carmel. If you've ever spent a sunny day sitting in Prospect Park, you've probably met Prince Lewis. Welcome to restaurant Prospect Park, he often says as he approaches people who are on dates, at parties, or on picnics, and tries to entice them to buy a nutcracker, 
a bottled cocktail that is often sold on New York City streets. Quote, I am excited and delighted to be your waiter. Can I get you all started with a nice Caribbean cocktail on this beautiful spring afternoon? Sometimes he'll spice up his introduction to make people smile, throwing in a bonjour or a compliment about how lovely everyone looks. Certain lines are reserved for specific circumstances, quote, only for the adults, he'll often add when there's a toddler or a child present. He might serenade those celebrating with, quote, happy birthday, <laughs> or even handing out a free drink. Sorry, there's no smoking allowed in the park, he solemnly told several groups of smokers last Saturday before cracking a magnetic smile, unless you're consuming a delicious Caribbean cocktail. That sounds dangerous and delicious. Maeve Calvadini, 30, said when Mr. Lewis approached her as she sat on a blanket, quote, I'm going to need a few hours probably before I drive. Uh, and he says, if you need to come to my uh, house to nap, I got you, her friend Melissa Barna. <laughs> there you go, 32 said. Though the exact details uh, vary depending on who you ask, it's mostly agreed upon that nutcrackers were created in the 1990s near where Harlem meets with the Upper West Side. Jose Chu worked as a manager in the 101st Street and Broadway location of Florida Mayo, a well-known Chino-Latino restaurant credited with inventing the first nutcrackers, told Grub Street in 2019 that he drink, uh, the drinks were named after the Christmas classic after he saw an ad for the New York City Ballet. No further explanation about the work. Okay, good enough. As restaurants and bars shut down in 2020, to-go cocktails became the backbone of a socially distant social life. And when the drinks were ripped away last June and later reinstated, it became how clear how many people were fans of drinking on the move. I heard friends of mine talking about it in New York City. But Nutcracker's homemade brews uh, that are not technically classified as to-go cocktails in New York are still illegal as is drinking them in local parks and beaches. Mr. Lewis, 33, visits the park to sell his $15 drinks year-round, but his peak seasons are spring and summer. On slower days, when it's rainy, dreary, or even snowing, he may only sell one or two, but on a sunny Saturday or Sunday, he can often crack a thousand bucks. Last Saturday, when the temperature in Brooklyn hit 90 degrees, he arrived at the park around 3 p.m., carrying two rolling bags filled with frozen but melting drinks. At most, he said, he can fit 60 in each bag, but that day he brought about 90 with him. Mr. Lewis, who has his own vodka made at a factory in Wisconsin, said that it probably costs him a bit more than a dollar to make each drink. He rotates through different flavors depending on the day or week, but on that Saturday he was selling mango, mint lemonade, strawberry mint lemonade, and ginger pineapple varieties mixed with vodka along with a bright red Caribbean rum punch. Sometimes he'll let people negotiate his price down to $10, but it's usually not necessary. Even when people, people tell him no off the bat, he manages to crack a joke or charm them, which is often enough to change their minds. Worst case scenario, if you don't leave them with a drink, you'll at least leave them with a smile, he said. Mr. Lewis, who grew up in, the Freeport Grand in Freeport, Grand Bahama, moved to Brooklyn in 2019. He said he was inspired early on during the pandemic to enter his current line of work by Brooklyn Vagabond, a masked and furloughed server who was selling drinks in Prospect Park. Vagabond, who was in his early 30s, kept his face and name out of articles for fear of getting into legal trouble. He said that he started selling cocktails for $10 to $15 in the park during the summer of 2020 after his restaurant temporarily shut down to support his family. I'd love to know who this guy is. Quote, none of the restaurants were open. The beaches were closed, he said. The only places to be were people's backyards or the park. 
He said that nutcrackers were traditionally, quote, really sweet, harsh alcohol, and it's just going to give you a buzz. But that many sellers found ways to rebrand or shake up the colorful drinks during the pandemic. Vagabond said that he puts a lot of thought in his cocktails, using a specific liqueurs and infusing them with herbs like mint and basil, which requires extra time and effort. Some people balk at the idea of spending $15 on a nutcracker. But as Mr. Lewis jokes about his drink, I prefer the gentrified term, craft cocktail. <laughs> he also said that in the nearly two years since he's been selling the drinks, he's never been stopped by the police. You uh, know when I feel really comfortable, he said. I saw these two blonde girls selling drinks in the park. I've heard of gentrifying neighborhoods, but gentrifying an entire hustle? That's new to me. I said to myself, okay, now I feel good, because the chances of the NYPD coming into this park and tackling two blonde girls are like 0.1%. He continued. So if they don't tackle them, they're definitely not going to tackle me. And even if they do, I'll have a very strong case in court. Yet many who sell drinks in New York's parks are far less open with their business. Vagabond said that an article that featured him in 2020 gave him an un uncomfortable amount of exposure. Within days of this New York Post article coming out, the NYPD was looking for my Instagram, he said. My worst fear came true. I got caught. After being let off with a warning, he decided selling in the park wasn't worth the heightened risk and effort. Now he, only, uh, he said he mostly just delivers drinks, occasionally catering events like birthdays and weddings. Some people think that I magically just appear in the park and I'm strolling along. I think people miss how hard and demanding it is. As debates continue to rage on about whether to allow go-to drinks, uh, to-go drinks, rather, Mr. Lewis said that he's hoping uh, Governor Kathy Hochul and Mayor Eric Adams will consider legalizing the work that Nutcracker salespeople do around the city. Quote, don't criminalize this, incorporate this, he said. I would rather pay a $200 license fee than a $200 fine. Uh, he said that he's on cordial terms with the other people who sell drinks in Prospect Park. There's enough pie in New York City for everybody today. I will editorialize. The biggest obstacle he usually faces, he said, is the sheer labor involved in dragging the heavy bags out of, uh, of drinks through the park. But even as dusk settled, Mr. Lewis kept his energy up. Sorry we're so hungover, one woman told him. If I had known you would be here, I would have bought all the drinks in this bag, another said. If you come back tomorrow, I'll be here on this exact spot. By 8.30 p.m., a little less than six hours after he arrived, Mr. Lewis had $560 on Venmo, $40 on Cash App, $51 on Zelle, and $410 in cash. With $1,061 in sales and tips, he had already surpassed his goal for the day, but he decided to stick around for another hour or so to sell a few more. At this point, I'm just having fun, he said. Whatever happens, happens. They're still here, so let's do it. As he struck out with his last group for the night, he left them with his usual parting words. Consider me a nice little day dream just floating on by. In other words, this never happened. But, uh, you know, getting an article in the New York Times uh, could be an issue. <laughs> uh, your further future success. Let's see. Here's a little article from the local news press, I believe from the USA, uh, the uh, AP network. Uh, Phoenix police find 1,200 stolen catalytic converters. Phoenix. An Arizona man was facing multiple theft charges Friday after detectives found more than 1,200 catalytic converters packed into a storage unit. A case that is an example of a national surge of thefts of auto parts that play a crucial role in reducing vehicle emissions. The discovery followed a month-long month investigation that began with a January tip that someone was storing ca stolen catalytic converters in an industrial area near Phoenix Sky Harbor International Airport. <laughs> in like a hangar? 
We were very surprised at the amount in there. Phoenix Police Detective Adam Propelier said in a police video taken Thursday as officers were pulling converters from the jam-packed storage locker. The 48-year-old man, whose uh, police said was buying and selling the converters, was charged of 40 counts of theft and may face additional charges. The huge rise... <laughs> 40 counts of theft with 1,200 uh, catalytic converters. Uh, the huge rise in catalytic converter thefts along the na- around the nation has hit tens of thousands of car and truck owners in the pocketbook. Mm-hmm. And frustrated police who are faced with a crime that takes just minutes to commit and is difficult to solve even if they find the stolen parts. Catalytic converters are not imprinted at the factory with serial numbers and, are stolen, and stolen converters end up on a black market where they are chopped open for the valuable materials they contain. Replacing one can cost a motorist from $1,000 to $3,000, according to the National Insurance Crime Bureau Insurance Industry Group that works to fight insurance fraud and crime. Police said the thieves can get from $100 to $150 for each converter. The insurance group counted just uh, 3,969 reports of stolen catalytic converters in 2019, more than uh, 17,000 in 2020, and more than 52,000 last year. So in uh, the pandemic, clearly has increased catalytic catalytic converter theft by 4, 40, 10, 11, 1200%. Lawmakers across the nation have taken notice, introducing legislation designed to make it harder for criminals to unload their loot. According to the National Insurance Crime Bureau, 150 bills have introduced this, uh, been introduced this year in 36 states and enacted in 16 states. That includes Arizona, where Republican Governor Doug Ducey uh, signed a bill earlier this month that makes possession of a catalytic converter in many instances a crime and as detailed reporting requirements for scrap dealers that buy legitimate used devices. They must mark the item with the donor vehicle's serial number and retain it for at least a week in original condition. Scrap dealers caught with unregistered or stolen converters face a $500 fine for the first offense, $2,000 fine for the second offense, and at least double that for any additional crime they're caught for. Those possessing, uh, possessing or trying to steal a used catalytic converter that don't meet new requirements could face a six-month jail sentence. Federal legislation is uh, also in the works. Indiana Representative uh, Jim Baird is sponsoring a bill backed by the National Insurance Crime Bureau that requires serial numbers on new devices, offer grants for programs to stamp numbers on existing cars and trucks, and make it easier to protect, prosecute thefts. Those grants, I'm sure, will be going right into the pocketbooks of... Um, people who probably not make the situation any better insurance often does not cover losses someone carrying a liability yeah so basically insurance doesn't cover it whatever the only reason i was covering is because uh uh just noticing the statistic of uh, the inc- uh, speed of which is increasing uh it must have been like a real internet trend some some uh, communications were had uh memes were exchanged and the internet uh, you know did something here uh, people learned about catalytic converter a uh, converter uh, th- theft. Plus, I bet you a lot of people had their catalytic converter stolen without them even knowing. So, unless you live in a smog state, I wonder if that's even known. Silent Island is crowded with these two around by Allison Kruger. New York Times, uh, New York edition, Sunday, May 29th, 2022. When people first started coming into Campania, a restaurant on Staten Island known for its coal-fired pizza and inquiring about Kim, Nicole Bressy, a server there, didn't quite get it. I was like, Kim isn't here today, but check back tomorrow, Mr. Bressy said. It took a few times to realize they weren't talking about my friend Kim, who works here with me. They were talking about Kim Kardashian. 
In November, Ms. Kardashian, the reality television star and influencer who recently stirred debate when she wore a Marilyn Monroe dress to this year's Met Gala, visited the restaurant in Donegan Hills, one of several campanias throughout the borough and Brooklyn. She was with her boyfriend, the comedian and actor Pete Davidson, who was born and raised in Staten Island. Word got out about the couple's romantic date on the roof of Campania, where, we'll say Campania, where they skipped the truffle mac and cheese and $150 seafood tower, opting for margarita pizza, salad, and sangria. Soon crowds were swarming the restaurant. It was crazy, said Umberto Guzman, a manager. The phone was ringing off the hook, and we had long lines every day. People wanted to sit on the roof all winter long because that's where she sat. But I had to explain to them that the roof was closed because it was cold. Six months later, the attention hasn't let up. So many people ask us about Kim. Uh, we now make up stories, <laughs> Mr. Bressy said. That's what I would do. I wasn't even here when Kim was here. But now I say, oh, yeah, we had coffee. It was lovely. Mr. Davidson had long been an ambassador for the borough, making a movie about it based on his life and buying a defunct Staten Island ferry boat with plans to turn it into an entertainment space. Uh, with Colin Jost, I believe, is the other person who bought it. Or maybe, yeah, I think that's who it was. Uh, he apparently also has a condo in Staten Island, although he's dropped hints about moving to Brooklyn. One of his videos on Saturday Night Live, where his departure was recently announced, was a take on the song Walking in Memphis. I'm walking in Memphis. <laughs> walking in Memphis. I put on my walking shoes on. Actually, you know what? I'm walking to Memphis. My uh, my voice is just isn't enough for this. We just need the real thing. So, um, I put on my dancing shoes and I boarded a plane. I apologize once again. I'm just a little sniffly. Wednesday shoes and I boarded a plane. Delta blues in the middle of the pouring rain. WC handy, won't you look down over me? I got a first class ticket. But I'm blue as a boy can be And I'm walking in Memphis Just walking with my tank and feel off a deal There we go Walking in Memphis. So there you go. We got like 80 bagel spots, and every block has a pizza place, he sang. We've got like 80 bagel spots, and every block has a pizza place. I'll just assume that's what he said. 
He has been taking his girlfriend to all his favorite Staten Island spots. Miss Kardashian's fans, locals looking for a kick, and the news media have noticed. Some say the attention is overwhelming. I don't want lines anymore because it's annoying or <laughs> for my customers, Mr. Luisi said. We've been busy since we opened last April because our, our food and our service is amazing. We don't even need her. The couple also went to the movies on Staten Island. Quote, you don't get any bigger than Kim Kardashian, said Jesse Scarola, the owner of the Atrium Stadium Cinemas, an independent theater near Great Kills with 11 screens and arcade games. Quote, the president could be here and it wouldn't be any bigger. When Miss Kardashian visited over the winter for a screening of House of Gucci, hundreds of people bought tickets or waited in the parking lot for a quick glimpse. Quote, my kids saw... She was there on social media and hopped in the car to try and see her, said Christina Ordolano, 46, a managing director with Bank of America who lives in Prince's Bay on the South Shore. Some people acted like they didn't care, but they did. People get starstruck. Mr. Scarcola, the owner of the atrium, is still getting a boost from Miss Kardashian's visit. Quote, someone called a few weeks ago, someone from out of town, saying they wanted to come to the theater that Kim visited, he said. He rented out the whole theater for his friends and paid for everyone's popcorn and food. Councilman Joseph Barelli of Staten Island is grateful for the, the Cineplex is getting some attention. The atrium is sort of a throwback to an old era where kids hung out at the movie theater and giggled at the back with their pals. Okay, first of all, kids in the back weren't giggling with their pals. They were boning down or uh, otherwise, okay? Uh... Etc. The atrium was crushed during the pandemic, and it's good that their name is in the paper for a good reason. Vincent Malareba, the owner of... I will also say this very quickly. I'm going to insert that the new trend for celebrities is taking care of local small businesses as like uh, their um, CSR, their corporate responsibility as celebrities. That's the new trend. Instead of like embracing social trends or social change or like any kind of progressive social issue, a lot of them are starting to embrace small business and like entrepreneurship as a replacement for that because it's less controversial. And I think that the grind mindset, the grind set as it were, is so present that um, it'll, they think it'll appeal to a, mar a larger market than what it'll turn off. Anyway. Oh, Vincent Malerba, owner of Angelina's Restaurante, waiter front of Totenville, said he was no longer blah, blah, blah. Okay, there are two studios up the block. One the old jail, one the old brewery, so we get tons of them, but no one did to us what Cam did. A photo he took with uh, the couple got thousands of likes on Instagram. We have never had more exposure than that. Let's see. Every summer, Ruby Hernandez, who works for development. When I go out and have my cigarettes on the rocks or by the river, I would see Pete coming out of his condo, which is right next to the museum. Jim Sarlo, 61, a site manager at the National Lighthouse Museum, said last Saturday, though he isn't sure the comedian still lives there. Ms. Sarlo, uh, Mr. Sarlo said he had seen Miss Kardashian leaving Mr. Davidson's condo and heading toward the ferry a few times as well. I just say, hey, sup, he said. That's what we say on Staten Island. Very weird. Weird, uh... Interesting, but uh, you know how much uh, I appreciate that world. I'm going to close it out with a little bit of uh, a comic reading where, yeah, it's perfect timing. This is a classic Peanuts from the Sunday, May 29th uh, paper. Charles Schultz, as always. Boy, will I be glad when school is out. This is uh, Lucy. My teacher has been driving me crazy. I think the principal hates me. All the custodians are crabby. 
and the building itself is either too hot or too cold, at which point a brick pops out of the wall and bonks Lucy on the head, and she responds in thought, imagining that the school has said to her, now you're getting personal, kid. Um... I'm going to close it out in the Garfield, actually. Garfield's on a flame-painted motorcycle. He hears a bark. He hears a bird barking. He sees a squirrel barking. He sees a turtle barking. He sees a bee barking a lot. And then he walks up to a dog in front of a sign that says, Barking Lessons. And he says, How's business? And the dog goes, Booming. That's it. That's the comic. There's really no punchline. Um, that's it. That's all I have today. I hope you enjoyed that song looping in the background. I think I'm actually going to turn it up. So, Actually, no. Here is the perfect song to go out on. Grab this. And I haven't been listening to headphones the whole time, so I hope that all worked out. Oh... Folks, this is uh, one more time, but I'll encourage you to go listen to the Reality Podcast. A great one this week is definitely the most significant one we've done. We interviewed uh, an artist, an artist, yeah, an artist, an author um, that has contributed greatly to uh, the development of the show and um, the Reality Show podcast. Um, go, go take a listen to it, uh, Reality Issues. I can promote it as much as I want, I suppose, because it's our show. Um, but please, go check it out. And uh, until then, let's see. I know that this, yeah. Let's see. What would be the perfect thing? Ah, here we go. Let's do it. week.